0: Support for WXAV 88.3 is being provided by Northwest Community Credit Union, located on campus inside the Graham School of Management. The credit union provides its members with a variety of financial products and services to help them achieve their financial goals. Whether it's a loan for a first car or helping with the purchase of books and supplies, Northwest makes its services available with convenient online and mobile banking. For more information, stop in. Visit their website at nwccu.com or call them at 1-800-TO-BELONG.
1: Support for WXAV is being provided by Bookies, an independent bookstore located at 10324 Southwestern Avenue in Chicago, with a second location at 2015 Ridge Road in Homewood. Both locations have large stocks of new and used books for both adults and children across many genres. Bookies places orders daily for books not currently in stock. For more information and upcoming events, please visit their website at bookiesbookstores.com. You can also follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is being brought to you by WXAV 88.3 FM and WXAV.com. WXAV, bringing the best podcasts to you. Hi, I'm Peter Creighton, host of The Rockology. Before the Marvel Cinematic Universe took over the silver screen, Marvel Comics took over the newsstands, and since 1961, it's been publishing tales of super soldiers, mutant outcasts, and friendly neighborhood spider man At half a million pages long and 27,000 issues and growing, Marvel Comics continued to capture the imagination. But has anyone ever read it? I mean, all of it. All 27,000 plus issues of the Marvel Comic Universe. Well, author and journalist Douglas Wolk has, and he chronicled his experience and what he learned in his new book called All of the Marvels. Here now, my interview with Douglas Wolk. The first question I have for you is um, how and why did you decide to read 27,000 plus issues of Marvel Comics?
0: Well, I mean you know, it's a stunt, right? You know, it's it's evil can evil jumping over eighty cars. It it's you know, Stephen Merritt writing sixty nine love songs. Um I knew I wanted to write a big thing about a big body of comics work and I wasn't really sure what. And then my son and I started reading comics together and reading Marvel stuff and he was very interested in how the big picture of it all fit together and I started thinking, what would it actually be like to read that whole story, to read the 27,000 plus comics that are all set in the same world that Marvel was published from 1961 onward. It's half a million pages, but it is one big story in the same way that, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is one big story. And I thought, that sounds like a book. And then I you know, wrote a proposal and got a contract to do the book, and I figured it would you know, maybe take a year and a half to do all the reading and maybe another year to write the book. And six years later, here we are. Wow.
1: It took six years to go through everything. You you detailed that in the book because you, you found back issues, you read graphic novels, you've read it on your Kindle and things like that. What was kind of that journey like just going to, to find all these issues to, to read?
0: But finding the stuff was not the hard part. The hard part was finding hours in the day to read it all. Um, <laughs> you know, it, Marvel Unlimited, which is Marvel's kind of Netflix-ish all-you-can-read service, has twenty thousand plus issues already. Uh, and I've you know I've been reading comics for like forty years. I had a bunch of stuff. I had friends who had stuff. I'm in touch with libraries. You know, that that was not the hard part. Um, tracking it down like that was it was fun. It was easy. And then actually like sitting myself down or you know standing up. I had, I had a walking desk, um, but just reading and reading and reading until my eyes couldn't take anymore every day. That was kind of more difficult. And I I didn't read things in order. Uh, We read this all in order. No, I didn't read it all in order. I grazed. I read whatever I felt like on any given day, Mm -hmm. which was great. And it was, you know, I had a big spreadsheet with everything on it, and I crossed things off the spreadsheet as I read them. And then towards the end, I realized, oh, there's some areas of the spreadsheet that I have kind of been neglecting, which is how I... Ended up locking myself into an apartment for eleven days with a case of protein drinks and thirty years of Punisher comics.
1: Oh my God! It sounds <laughs> like you thing. were punished with that.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I just had had to figure out how to take it.
1: <laughs> now, um, did you ever, at any point in this process, did you did you contact Marvel? Um, did they know about this this book that you were? Getting ready to write, and if so, I'm kind of curious what their reaction was to the project.
0: I mean, it, it was announced when I did the contract, and I think they knew about it. But I, I was not really in touch with them during the process at all. Like it, this was an independent piece of you know, scholarship and criticism, and so it was. It was me on my own. Uh, I. Since the book came out, I've appeared on a couple of Marvel's podcasts. And actually, a wonderful thing happened about uh, three weeks ago. There's an issue of Defenders that came out. And on the last page, you see Dr. Strange at home in his library. And on his bookshelf is a copy of my book.
1: Oh, my God, that's amazing. So you're now a part of the Marvel Comic Universe,
0: apparently. And actually, I was on the on the shelf next to, uh, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire by Will Hermes, and Words and Music by Paul Morley, which are two of my absolute favorite books about music. So it, it was a it was a huge compliment.
1: Oh, man, that's an absolutely incredible. So I, I got to ask, because I've read the book, and I, I loved it. it. I was walking in uh, a local branch of my library, and it just jumped off the shelf at me and demanded my attention. Oh, that's great. How did you choose which uh, characters to write about and feature in the book? Because... Um, I mean, obviously, you're going to have Spider-Man, you have the Fantastic Four, you have Thor. But I was kind of surprised because you mention Iron Man, but you really don't dedicate a whole chapter to Iron Man in, in this book. So I'm kind of just curious how you went about, you know, just deciding who's going in and who, who's getting on the cutting room floor.
0: I wrote a lot more than ended up in the book. Uh, I basically wrote this book twice and i wrote a bunch of chapters that sometimes i was not happy with them sometimes i was happy with them but just they didn't belong in the finished book because i wanted to have a book that would be fun and pleasurable and entertaining for people to read even if they weren't especially interested in the comics themselves even if they weren't especially interested in the characters and so there's stuff that's I could have put in that would have been redundant with what was there or just like, okay, yeah, you're kind of going over similar kind of thing in a similar kind of way. Or there were things that actually worked pretty well that just like, you know, it throws the balance of the thing off and it makes it less good as a book. So stuff went, there was a full on Iron Man chapter that, that went away. There was a full on Captain America chapter that got stripped for parts Um there was in fact a full-on Punisher chapter that uh, I ended up just printing up as a little chapbook to bring out on book tour and uh, like, let people have there. Like it, it was fun. It didn't belong in the book, um, so you know there's there was not going to be any way that I could go into detail on everything. But I wanted to kind of give an overview of ways of looking at the comics instead of like. Let's talk about all of them. Like, here, here, are some, here are some passageways through it. Here are some ways of thinking about a particular character, a particular body of stuff within this that you're interested in. Here are some pointers toward some weird little back alleys of the comics that, that might be to your taste. You might want to go explore or not.
1: And I think you're incredibly successful because – as I was reading this book, I was almost starting to take notes and like, okay, this sounds interesting. I want to read this. I want to read this. Um, it was, it was just, it's absolutely wonderful. But that that bigger issue that you kind of touched on, I kind of want to explore that for a minute. Um, yeah. After reading all these issues and really thinking about them and 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 living with it for the past six years, how has Marvel Comics? fundamentally changed or not changed American storytelling? Because I I do think, and this is coming from a guy that grew up on DC comics. So this still pains me a little bit to say this, but I mean, there's, there's definitely that that first fantastic four comes out in 61 and it's a game changer. Comics is never the same after that issue comes out.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I was a DC kid too, you know, (laughs) um, if I had to pick my single favorite body, uh, like big body of English language single universe comics work, it'd probably be Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. But uh, I love the Marvel stuff too. I think the transformation was not, you know, Fantastic number one comes out and nothing is ever the same. It's slow. It's a gradual thing. The, quote, Marvel universe comes together kind of slowly and kind of by accident. Uh, And then at some point, like, it's just sort of formed itself. What it did, though, was build this idea of little stories making up a bigger story. And of the little stories that kind of existed together, moving forward sluggishly and not perfectly, and sometimes not totally in sync, but moving forward. And the idea that you could hold... A story in your head and then hold five other stories in your head and then see how they came together and see what happened and how they all affected each other. That's something that really comes out of what Marvel became. And it's a kind of storytelling that you see in a lot of other places now. I and mean, In some ways, it's the transmedia dream, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also it's, it's something that is new and big and special that... I think storytellers are still kind of figuring out as, as a not even just an arrow added to their quiver, like a whole new a whole new quiver to add to their arsenal. I,
1: I think after reading your book, one thing that I really took a, a new appreciation of was the almost unsung heroes of the comic industry. Like we always hear about, you know, um, you know Alan Moore and 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 Frank mm-hmm. Miller, the great writers but you really take your time too to talk about like the pencillers and the colorers and and the individuals who are actually drawing these very beautiful stories and things like that after reading all these issues i mean what was your did you get a whole new appreciation for the 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 colorers and the and the pencillers and that
0: oh yeah i mean the artists are like that's what comics is that is what makes comics special they're not just drawing the stories, they are showing the stories, they are making the stories happen through their particular eye and their particular hand. If you take any given comic drawn by a particular person, and if you see it drawn by somebody else, it's a completely different experience, a completely different experience. And that is even in the cases where there is a writer who is writing the whole thing, which in the case of comics, and especially Marvel comics, is really not very often the case. In the 60s, Stanley was writing the scripts, but Stan he was writing the actual words, the language that you see on the page. As far as the plot, as far as what happens in the story and how it happens, that was usually down to the artists. Mm -hmm. That was Jack Kirby, that was Steve Ditko, that was to some extent most of the other artists who were working with Marvel in the 60s. And even now, the most effective comics are very, very often very close collaborations between people handling different aspects of what's happening in the stories. If you look at even the X-Men comics from the last couple of years, we talked about colorists. Marta Gracia, who colored House of X and Towers of Ten, even when Marta Gracia is not coloring all the X-Men comics, Martha Grassi's imprint is on all those comics because he came up with the color palette mm-hmm. that is being used for them. All the particular colors, the particular shades that are used, like he balanced sort of earth tones and nature colors with neon tones. And that is the palette that those color artists are using now. And that's a huge part of the effect of those stories. It, it is not a writer's medium. It is a collaborative medium, or it is a medium by in some cases, one person who's just doing everything.
1: Yeah. And I think you, you just did such a great job in, in your book really emphasizing that collaboration between, you know, the, the writer, the, the colorer, the, the penciler. It, it's a real team effort. And, and that's, I think, something that, you know, even I as a comic book fan, and I've been reading since, you know, the late 80s, has kind of, I, I've forgotten about that. So um, I'm glad you really bring that up in your book. Um, which, by the way, is called All the Marvels. You definitely need to go and check it out. I got to ask, it's a little bit of a cliche question, but I think it's still a fun one. Did you get any new favorite Marvel characters after this experience?
0: I mean, new favorite characters, characters I had never encountered before. Before, And I read a lot of comics before I started on this project. There were a few characters who I suddenly you know, saw in a different context. There's a character called Diamondback. I love um she there's there's two different characters called them in fact but the one in question is a woman who appears in Captain America a bunch in the 80s or 90s like she's effectively you know the secondary lead character of Captain America for a long period and she's she's just fascinating she turns up uh, from time to time here and there um and I always appreciated Shang-Chi and When I started working on the Master of Kung Fu chapter of the book, one of the first things I wrote was like, there's never going to be a Shang-Chi movie. There's never going to be a Shang-Chi TV show. There's never going to be a Shang-Chi video. There's a Shang-Chi movie now. A couple months ago, I bought a Shang-Chi little golden book. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. And not only that, it's a great
0: movie too. Yeah, it's a real good movie. Um, Absolutely fascinating premise for a character. The comic from the 70s and 80s is... Number one, great. Number Mm -hmm. two, unbelievably problematic. Like, super, super problematic. Like, there is stuff in every single issue that I cringed hard at, and there's also stuff in every single issue that I was like, wow, this is actually amazing.
1: And, again, there's that honesty in your book where you acknowledge that and you call out some of the problematic uh, issues with, with the comics and
0: everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's pop culture. It's always going to be problematic. But the thing about problematic stuff is it's a problem. It means you have to wrestle with it. it. doesn't mean that you necessarily have to ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist. It means that you get to engage with it and think about how you feel about this stuff and look at the historical context of it and acknowledge that there's stuff that's like, ooh, that would just not fly now. And also acknowledge that there's stuff that is beautiful and meaningful and valuable and it's the stuff that, you know, the stuff that's painful and difficult, like if that makes you nope know out of reading it, that's fine. Mm-hmm. There is, there is no law that says like you have to like everything no matter how grossly awful it is. But also, you know, if, if you are able to think about it and look at it and deal with it, there can be really rewarding things in there too. And it's tough and it's hard and sometimes it's really worthwhile.
1: Yeah, I agree. I have to say, when I finished your book, you made me go out and order Squirrel Girl. Um, yeah. It just sounds so right up my alley and so unique and different, and I cannot wait to read that entire line. Um,
0: and it who would have thought Squirrel Girl? What that Squirrel Girl? I mean, Squirrel Girl was literally a joke character for 25 years. She was created as a kind of one-off joke. In the 15 years after she first appeared, it was always in a like, can you believe we published a story with Squirrel Girl kind of way. Mm -hmm. And then 2015, Ryan North and Erica Henderson came up with a way to use that character that made sense and was funny and clever and engaging and kind of lovely and. And it it is one joke, but it's a really great joke. And the joke is, you know, she's got the powers of a squirrel and the powers of a girl, but her real power is that she's incredibly good at creative, nonviolent conflict resolution. Yeah,
1: it's so I mean, just reading it and she becomes friends with Galactus. And then at the end, all the people she's helped come to help her. I mean, it's this just beautiful story that you describe. And I can't wait to jump into it and, and read it and everything.
0: Oh, I'm so glad.
1: So we're, we, I got a couple more for you. Um, yeah. You know, WXAV is a college radio station here in Chicago. And um, for you, how has college radio or college media as a whole influenced you personally? And do you think it has any sort of impact on the, like, the larger professional medium out there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I did college radio as an undergrad, a lot like i pretty much lived in my college radio station what i got from that was not like let's do a career in radio um you know i, I dj'd for a little while on wfmu 20 years ago but uh, that was never the goal what college radio was for me was a way to get deeply deeply engaged with kinds of art that i really cared about the people at my radio station were absolutely passionate about finding out and learning about music and doing everything they could to to get inside and to get inside it and to understand it. Um, every, at the end of every semester, we would do long specials, we would concentrate on one particular musician or composer or kind of music or label or something. And we would learn everything about them, and we would just do these immaculately researched, comprehensive things. Like one of the best ones I got to do was: there's a band from Boston called Mission of Burma. Yeah, uh, and they were around, you know, between 1979, and 1982, 1983, and then you know, they they got back together around 2000. But this this was before then. But so, Mission Burma recorded. One studio album, one live album, one EP, a one, uh, couple singles. I did an eight-hour radio special on them. I <laughs> interviewed all of them, interviewed their roadies, the people who shared their studio, the people who did their label, dug up everything they recorded, outtakes, live stuff, things by their side projects, and put together this eight-hour special on this band that recorded about an hour's worth of music. Amazing, and. It was fantastic as an experience for me, not necessarily as a, like, I did a great piece of audio, but as a case of, like, I really did an intensive research project to find out everything I could about something that meant a lot to be, and and then figure out how to present that to an audience, how to present it to people who didn't have to do all the research themselves but could experience it as an audience for pleasure. And that is something that I'm still basically doing. Like that was the preparation for it. It was not direct professional preparation. It was a chance to plunge myself into something that I could do that I didn't have to worry about, you know, you know making ratings. I didn't have to worry about pleasing a boss. I just could devote myself to this in and, and the intense and passionate way. That's an incredibly special thing about college media.
1: That is like one of the best responses I've ever had to that question. Thank you so I'm much, Paul sure. Douglas. I, I love it. Final question I have for you. Douglas, you've read 27,000 issues of Marvel Comics over six years. Are you still
0: a fan? I go to the comic store every week. I pick up new books. I saw when I finished the book, like, okay, I'm going to take a little break from the comic stuff for a little while. There's a bunch of prose books piling up, uh, some other stuff. I could... And then I swung by my favorite comic store. I was like, ooh, there's a new issue of Hellions. i got to pick that up. I, you know, I'm a lifer. No way out. That's awesome. I'm a lifer, too. I
1: just started Doom Patrol with Grant Morrison last night, so such a oh fun world.
0: It's really good. That series just keeps getting better as it goes along. Um, yeah, you've got a treat in store.
1: Douglas, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day today to, to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that was my interview with Douglas Wolk. For more information on Wolk, please visit his website, douglaswolk.com. His new book, All of the Marvels, is available in bookstores now. I'm Peter Creighton, and thanks for listening. Thank you very much for listening to this WXAV 88.3 FM podcast.
0: Be sure to visit our website, WXAV.com, for more information on your escape from ordinary radio.